0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is a strange chapter. But then again, what chapter in Revelation isn't strange? You know, last week we have an angel with one foot on the earth and one foot in the sea. We have a 200 million man army with horses that have faces like lions. Like, come on, this is strange stuff, right? And here's why it's strange. Uh, Very few times God has stepped into human history like this. In fact, by design, most of human history has just unfolded in a very normal way, and that's the way God had it purposed. When God flooded the world in Noah's day, when Noah came off the ark, he gave Noah the rainbow. And he said, no, Noah, this rainbow is a sign to you of a covenant that as long as the earth remains, in other words, until we get to something like the book of Revelation, there will be sea time and harvest and summer and winter. In other words, there will be business as usual. This is why Peter said that scoffers and skeptics would come in the last day and say, where is the promise of his coming? There's no second coming. All things consist as they were since the beginning of creation. God kind of put it on autopilot. When we look at the Bible, we see this type of activity, uh, miraculous activity, it seems to come in bunches, right? Uh, It happens when God delivers Israel out of Egypt. It happens under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha certainly at the birth of Christ and his ministry, and then the early church, uh, we seem to see this miraculous activity where God steps into human history. Uh, today, we're gonna look at these men that are called the two witnesses, if you read ahead. And I've always been fascinated about this. People that don't even read Revelation seem to all know about these two people, these two witnesses. I led my brother to Christ, and um, he was growing, And no two people could be as opposite as we were, right? He was a pot-smoking, acid-dropping, heavy metal player with hair down here. And I was a basketball player that got good grades, and we were just opposite. I thought he was such a lost cause, I wasn't even going to preach the gospel to him. Lo and behold, he gets saved, and God's teaching him how to read through the Bible. Calls me one day, and he had a lot of goofy questions early on. But he calls me one day, and he said, God spoke to me. And I'm like, cool, God's speaking to him. And he said, God spoke to me and told me I'm going to be one of the two witnesses. And I'm like, you read Revelation 11 already? Now, by this time, I didn't care. From what he came from, if he thought he was going to be one of the two witnesses, great. I could care less. Just the fact that he was on board was a good thing. But everybody seems to know who these people are. So we're going to read Revelation 11. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. But there's going to be a surprise today. Because God gave me like a little special download that I think has helped me and will help all of us. So let's start Revelation chapter 11. John said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot. And that time period is very common, 42 months. It's the last three and a half years of the history of this planet. Now, I wanna stop there because John is told to become interactive, right? Last chapter, he had to swallow this book, and now he's told to measure the temple. And when you measure something in scripture, you're measuring it for judgment. And the fact that he's measuring a temple means there has to be a temple. And we're talking about Jerusalem. Look at verse eight. It says, this city who's spiritually a Sodom and Gomorrah And then it says where our Lord is crucified, so this is Jerusalem. There will be a temple in the final phase of world history in Jerusalem. Solomon built the first temple in 586 B.C. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was dedicated by Zerubbabel in 518 B.C. And it was the temple Jesus knew. However, Herod had expanded it. It was a 50-year building project. Remember when Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days? The response is, it has taken 50 years to build this temple. Uh, Herod built it to one of the wonders of the known world. But it was the temple Jesus knew. The Romans destroyed that in 70 AD, and there has not been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. What is there and has been there since the 15th century is a mosque. The al aqsa Mosque sits there right now where one time the Holy of Holies was. So how in the world is a temple going to arrive in this place? There are three possibilities. The first possibility is that there is a cataclysmic worldwide event that will usher in something like this being a possibility. I think it's the rapture. Hundreds of millions of people missing all over the world. We'll see the rise of a world leader that we call the Antichrist. He will broker peace in the Middle East, and we will see the ecumenical solution of the ages where the Jews, Muslims, and Christians can all worship side by side. Uh, Very plausible as I look at history and where the world is moving. Second possibility is that the mosque gets destroyed in an act of terrorism or war. And then finally, the third possibility, the really smart people at Hebrew University are always using new devices to say, really, where was the Holy of Holies? Maybe they decided it was somewhere else on the Temple Mount, and you really can build a temple next to a mosque. Whatever happens in the last days, the last of the last days, there will be a temple in Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets strange. Verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Here's these men or women. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Everything normal so far. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, here's where we get strange, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, they're killed in this manner. These two have power, they can shut up heaven so no rain will fall in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Pretty cool, huh? When they finish their testimony, the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit, makes war against them, overcomes them, and kills them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street in Jerusalem. And then those peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, so we're talking about worldwide, will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in grace. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, the whole world can see this, make merry and send gifts to one another, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So it gets a little sticky here, right? The question everybody wants to know is, who are these guys? And are they literal? Is it a metaphor? Like, what's going on here? Well, you know what I'm going to answer, right? When we read the Bible, it's always literal until it tells us otherwise, even in apocalyptic literature, So unlike these other chapters where we see horses with faces like lions and beasts and certain things, uh, this seems very historical, right? We have Jerusalem, we have the time frame, we have two men, uh, except for their power and their type of ministry, which is strange, everything seems kind of normal here. Now, there's been a lot of speculation on who they are, but I think we're asking the wrong question, because I really don't care who they are, I really care what they are. And that's going to be the heart of what I'm going to talk about. But just so we can go over the hump a little bit, here's where great commentators and scholars kind of land. And before you'd have to read books on this, now you can just YouTube or Google it. Most people think it's Moses and Elijah because they met Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there, if you remember. And they're the law and the prophets. And, you know, Moses made the Nile turn to blood, and he brought the plagues down, and Elijah shut up the heavens. So a lot of people think it's these two guys. Others think it's Elijah and Enoch, because neither of them died, right? Enoch was translated. Elijah goes up in a whirlwind, and they look at that scripture in Hebrews, it's appointed for man to die once, then the judgment. The problem is, Lazarus died twice, so you can't use that scripture that way. So I don't think there's as much credence to that. Others say the lampstand and the olive trees is the church in Israel, that seems to kind of fit, but there's a lot of problems with that view. Again, I'm really not concerned with who they are, but what they are. God says, they are my witnesses, that's very important. Because Jesus said in Acts 1-8, this is the last thing he said before he left earth, he said, you are my witnesses. He was speaking to the 12 and all those who would ever believe. And I will give you power. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and to the ends of the earth. The truth of the matter is God will never leave himself without a witness. The book of Romans is foundational to understanding faith. And it starts out with an indictment on the entire human race. Where Paul writes that since the creation of the world, the attributes of God are clearly seen by the things that he's made, so much so that man is without excuse. What Paul is saying is if anyone walked outside their door in the history of the world, they'd have to know there was a God. The starry heaven above and the amazing complexity of the human body and the nature we see every day would make you conclude there's a God, and man did. World religion really revolved around nature for thousands of years. In chapter 2, there's an indictment on the Hebrews. Because God gave the Hebrews the law and the commandments and the oracles and the prophets. The Hebrews were the first people to say, no, nature is not involved in our religion because God said in the second commandment, you're not going to make anything like a four-footed creature, anything above the earth, below the earth, or in the earth. Nothing will represent me. Why? Because God set his glory above the heavens, David said. It's a reflection of who he is. He, he laid out the earth with the span of his finger. Heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is only his handiwork. Day by day, it's preaching to us. It's utter forth speech. There has to be a designer. So man was without excuse. The Jews were without excuse. They had the oracles. They had the covenants. And that's why the summary comes in chapter 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The indictment falls on the entire human race. God's never left himself without a witness. We are in the age of the church, the church, you and I, the people, not the institution. We are God's hands and feet. We are dispensing grace. We're the witness. When the witness of the church is gone, in the last of the last days, the seven-year period, There's an angel preaching the everlasting gospel. There's 144,000 Jewish evangelists in chapter seven of Revelation. There are people saved in the tribulation. They're certainly preaching the gospel. And then there's these two witnesses who seem to be God's mechanism in the last days for worldwide belief in the gospel. Now, this is conjecture and speculation. It's what I believe. I've never heard it or read it which probably means you shouldn't believe this, but I'm gonna go with it anyway. I believe these two individuals, whoever they are, will hone in on some type of technology where they're gonna be able to preach the gospel to all the world, you won't even need missionaries. You say, Pastor Bob, how in the world did you come to that conclusion? Because when they die and they're raised from the dead, it says the whole world can see this. Now in John's day, that was impossible. It was impossible for most of world history. It was only made possible when television was invented. People that read the Bible for the first time said, oh my gosh, this is possible. I remember when John Paul died, the Pope. Uh, I think almost two billion people watched that funeral. And you would see state capitals around the world with jumbo screens. Little did we know we'd have devices one day where we could watch it. So if we could watch their dead bodies, there had to be a mechanism where the gospel will go into all the world because it says every kindred, every tribe, every tongue would hear. Now, that's God's plan in the future. But again, God said, these are my witnesses. And in Acts 1.8, it says that all who would believe, you will be my witnesses and you'll preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Every Christ follower is a witness. And what is a witness? The word martyros, witness in the Greek, is where we get the word martyr. Jesus said, unless a grain of seed goes in the ground and dies, it'll never live again. A Christ follower is somebody who died to themselves. That's what happens at salvation. That's why in Romans, we're put into the water, we're immersed. It's a sign that your life died and was risen in Christ, a new creation. It was a sign that you took your hand off the wheel and said, God, I'm giving you my life. You put your hands on the wheel. That's what Scott Harrison of Charity Water did. He was 28 years old. He had girls, money, bling. He had everything anybody would ever want in New York City. And at 28 years old, both his hands were numb. He went to every doctor, and then he did what we all do. He Googled it. And while he was Googling numb hands, he came upon an essay about being numb spiritually. Sent him on a two year journey where he finally accepted Christ. Left New York City and all the money and fame and went on mercy ships for a year. Traveled mercy ships for a year, a floating hospital, and reached out to people in developing countries. Saw people carrying these jerry cans. And he said, Oh my gosh, in New York City, we have tap water and these people have no clean water. And he starts charity water and the rest is history. Scott became a witness. In other words, he died to the life he had, and God resurrected it to why he was put on this planet. Now here's the rub. See, there's a tendency to look at Scott like a celebrity Christian. And to look at people that do great things for God as celebrity Christians, famous pastors or evangelists, etc. And one of the things I think we need to understand is is that God is in the business of using ordinary, regular people, and he has them do extraordinary things. And I think we have to come to the place in our lives where we have to stop wanting to live other people's Christian lives and just settle for living our own. And I wrote that for me, not for you. We have to stop looking over the fence and saying, I wish I could live Scott's life, I wish I could live Pastor Bob's life, I wish I could live somebody else's life. Because you know what the reality is? We want all this power. The reason my brother wanted power is because it looked really cool, right? I'll breathe fire on people. Are there some people you want to breathe fire on? Some institutions you like to breathe fire on? See, we want all that power. And what I'm realizing is most of the power God has ever given to people that have done everything is the ability to say yes. Just say yes to God. Next week, we're going to read Luke 2, right? Once a year, we read it. It's wonderful, the Christmas story. Hasn't changed. Last time I looked, chapter starts out with all the world players, all the important people. In the days of Caesar Augustus, boy, he was powerful. Herod the Great, he was the king of the Jews. He was powerful. And Quirinius was governor of Syria. He was powerful. And Pilate was powerful. The Sanhedrin, the 70 led Israel, were powerful. And God overshoots them all and finds Mary and Joseph, and shepherds, and fishermen, and tax collectors. And what we discover in all their stories is their life was ordinary until God showed up. And God laid something out for them. I mean, think about it. Mary, she's in Nazareth. She's poor. She's unknown. Now, she's legendary today, right? There's books, there's Christmas songs about her. You go to South Philly, she's on almost everybody's lawn. I mean, come on, everybody knows Mary, right? She carries Jesus, she's the the mother of God in some way. But then there's Joseph, Do you ever think about Joseph? You know, he has to endure his girlfriend telling him she's pregnant, and by the way, it was God, right? He's gotta endure that. And then scripture gives us no information about Joseph. Like Zippo, nothing. To the point where we think, well, this guy had anything to do with anything until you realize when the eyes of God went to and fro and God said, who can I trust raising my son? He found Joseph. And Joseph taught him carpentry and taught him how to be a man and taught him the law. And see, God takes ordinary things And he makes us witnesses. That's the power. See, I don't need the power to have fire come out of my mouth. I need the power to just tell the person on the airplane how God's changed my life. That's the power I need sometimes. God revealed this to me one time. Uh, I was in a hard ministry season. My wife knew it. And uh, she stayed home on a Sunday morning, which was rare for her, and booked us a motel at the shore for a Sunday night. So I got home, we put all the kids in, we drove to this motel, and it was like this seedy motel. Do you ever see those ones where like the people back their car up to the door so they can work out of their trunk? And the pool has like a chain link fence and there's hair floating around and the basketball court has no net, right? It's like one of these places. But I was just glad to be there. And we went to the pool to take a swim and I brought a cooler because we were going to go to the beach. And so we got up to go to the beach and we got to a traffic light, and my family crossed, but the light turned red, and I said, guys, I'll, I'll, I'll just cross and meet you there. I'm ready to cross when it turns green, and a woman who was at the pool tapped me on my shoulder. And I said, ma'am, can I help you? She goes, um, are you a pastor by any chance? I said, yeah, I am. She goes, well, I heard your interaction with your family, and I just thought maybe you'd be a pastor. I said, what's up? She said, you have a couple minutes? I'm like, yep. She said, uh, my husband and I were Christians, we were on fire for God, we got married, and then he changed. And he stopped going to church, and he started beating me. And he's beat me for a long, long time, and I finally got the guts to, to kind of step away, and I took my son, and I came to this motel, and my prayer basically is, God, if you don't show up at this time and do something, I'm going to throw in the towel. And we stood there for 20 minutes, And I prayed with her and counseled her and told her some things I think I would do. But what really was important is when she left and I crossed the street, I don't know if it was the voice of God or my own mind, but there was almost something that came into my spirit. The reason I don't have more of these encounters is because I'm never around the people that Jesus tried to minister to. See, if I had more time, I would have booked a fancier hotel, and I would have missed that moment. See, being a witness means just showing up in the moments God has ordained. Mary never knew the Christmas story, neither did Joseph. The disciples thought they would fish for the rest of their life. See, we don't need power to call fire down from heaven. We just need power to declare the greatest story ever told. When Anthony Evans was here, I said, uh, Jonathan Evans, I'm sorry, I said, Jonathan, you played NFL football. What was it like to be in locker rooms? I mean, I was in a college locker room, but gosh, you're in a locker room with guys making millions of dollars and girls and all this stuff. I said, what was it like being a Christian there? He goes, it was easy. He goes, the way I looked at it, he goes, they were really vocal about what they were doing. I just thought I'd be vocal about what I was doing. I thought, yes, that's that's the answer. And you think about it, why are we so ashamed of the gospel? It is the greatest message in the world. It's the power of God, first of all, in the salvation. That alone makes it the greatest message. But do you realize it's the greatest message as we go down the boxes of life? Like, human sexuality's been turned on its head. I think we need another sexual revolution. We have one in the 60s. I think Christians should start another one because the world's gotta be tired of the sexuality they have. I tell people all the time, I've been in a same-sex marriage for 35 years. You know what that means? I've been having the same sex for 35 years. (laughs) Some of you get squeamish when we talk about sex in church, I know. And I always get an email, my eight-year-old was there and you talked about sex. Great, talk to him in the car. He's getting it from everybody else. Where else should we talk about it? G.K. Chesterton said, every man going into a brothel is looking for God and I believe it. No one wants to live sexually the way we're living in this culture, we have the greatest message. We have the greatest message about community. We just had a youth meeting where we looked at the five things that are really targeting our youth and one of them is they're more connected than any kids in history and they have less community than any kids that have ever lived. There is no community like church community if you choose to get involved. And you can go down to education and I mean, we can go on and on. We really do have the greatest message because God gave us a manual. He gave us Emmanuel and Emmanuel, right? It's one of the same. And so we have this message and for some reason we get ashamed of it and it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, God gives these two witnesses power and there's an interesting illustration of these olive trees and I don't know if you remember this, but if you go back to Zechariah, remember the vision he had where the candlesticks had to be changed every day, the oil poured in, the wicks were trimmed, right, in the temple? But he sees this vision of two olive trees where the oil naturally goes in. He was seeing a day where it would be not by might, not by spirit, but my, uh, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There would come a day where the universal supply of the Holy Spirit would rest on individuals we live in that day. In other words, there is an unending supply of supernatural power that God has given us. For some reasons, Christians are chasing power when it's right here within us. Power to be witnesses. This is why Paul said, we are God's poems. We are his workmanship. We're being read by all men. We have the aroma of life to some, the aroma of death to others. People are reading our lives, and there's this power in us and power in the gospel. Now, the disciples wanted this power. There was a day where they saw the Samaritans, and they were doing ministry in a different way. And James and John thought, oh, we'll get some points with Jesus here. Lord, should we now call fire down from heaven? See, everybody's always wanted this power. And do you all remember what Jesus' response was? You don't know what spirit you're of. See, in the last days, these two witnesses, that will be their ministry. But Jesus said, not until then. You're of a different spirit. I was reminded of this on May 19th, 2018, I'll never forget the day. My sister who couldn't have children through in vitro had one child and she was graduating college that day. So we were in Rhode Island and went to her graduation, had a nice party after we had to come all the way back to Philly because we had church the next day. It was also the day where at St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, uh, Prince Harry married Meghan Markle. Many of you probably watched. So on the way home, my girls were watching it live on whatever it was on. And I kind of flashed back to when Diana got married, all the pomp and circumstance and all. So we're driving, and it came time for the sermon. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be some watered down, light on the gospel, fluffy wedding sermon, right? And boy, was I wrong. Bishop Curry, who was the first African-American head of the Episcopal Church, got up to speak. His oratory was brilliant. His message was even better. He started off by quoting Song of Solomon. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is stronger than death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. He went on to quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love, and when we do that, we will make the world a new world, for love is the only way. There's power in love, don't underestimate it, don't uh, over-sentimentalize it, there's power in love. And I thought, okay, here's where it's going to get mushy, but it didn't. He said, ultimately, the source of love is God himself. And then he quotes 1 John 4, Behold, God is love, and those who love are born of God. And he said, there's power in love. And he said, there's love that's even greater than the love of a young couple. And I thought, oh my gosh, here we go. And with over a billion people watching, and later I watched it, George Clooney and Heads of State, and I thought, these guys are in church. These guys are in church today. He said, someone once said that Jesus began the most revolutionary movement in all human history, a movement grounded in the unconditional love of God for the world, a movement mandating people to live that love, and in so doing, change not only their lives, but the very fabric of the world. There's a bomb in Gilead. This way of love is the way of life. They got it. He died to save us all. He died for anything, for anyone who couldn't help themselves. Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the good of the other, for the well-being of the world. That's what love is. Love is not selfish. It's not self-centered. It has to be sacrificial. And in so doing, becomes redemptive. And the way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love changes lives, and it's changed the world. And I thought, boy, was God honored that day. Because for 2,000 years, love, the love we've had for lost people, the love God's put inside of us has changed the course of this world in so many ways we can elaborate. It's what made Scott Harrison chuck his life and bring water to millions and millions of people. It's what had others preach the gospel and you and I tell friends. We're not dancing to our DNA, we're not acting on selfish genes. The love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit has allowed us to bring the gospel to the world. But there's something even more powerful, something more exponential. And it happened on the last time Jesus had the 12 together. The resurrection has happened, they're in Galilee And Peter, who's the natural-born leader, says, I'm going fishing. Now, he didn't mean he was going recreational fishing. He had fished all his life. He goes, I'm going back to fishing. And they all followed. They were all going back to the way life was. The Jesus revolution was over. And Jesus comes along. They had been fishing all night, we're told, and caught nothing. By the way, John's the writer, the same John who wrote Revelation, and Jesus comes over, and they don't know it's he, and he said, uh, hey, have you guys caught anything? Now, the last thing a fisherman ever wants to hear when he's caught nothing is, what have you caught? And they said, uh, no, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. And then there's a second thing no fisherman wants to hear. Why don't you cast your net on the other side? Now, you don't think they've been casting on both sides all night? And now they've got to hear from a carpenter and a rabbi that should throw his net on the other side? And you know the story, they get a haul of fish. They've seen the movie before, right? And Jesus has a fire there, and they all eat, and they fellowship, and he takes Peter aside and he restores him, right? And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He says, Lord, I know, you know that I love you. He goes, feed my sheep. And two more times, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I've always amazed that the man that would lead the Jesus movement and lead the church was given no tactical strategy, basically nothing, except, do you love me more than these? And once Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you more than these, then Jesus knew he can get anything he'd done done through Peter. Because the power of love comes from our ability to say yes to God. Once you say yes, it's game over. God can do anything. Once you say yes to God, he can bring water to the world. The question is how many people want to say yes to God? How many people can actually say, God, I love you more than my plan for my life. I love you more than these. And God i will say yes to your plan. And once you say yes to that, and once you love Jesus more than anything else, the door's open to what he can do, and you'll become his witness. You know, I always marvel when people say, when you're telling them about salvation, and the gospel they will say, what about those who never heard? And I always taught you guys, if anybody says that to you, just tell them, don't worry about them, now you've heard. That's all you really got to tell them. But do you realize the answer to that question you heard is pretty profound? See, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the other parts of the earth, they were in Jerusalem. Guess where you were? In the other parts of the world. The furthest parts of the world. Europe was full of barbarians, and America didn't exist. The fact that 2,000 years later, the gospel came to you is a miracle of God's witness. But because you're Western and you think the world revolves around America, you're wondering about the people that have never heard over there, but see, they heard before you heard. The fact that you heard is the true miracle. God will never leave himself without a witness. In the last days, these two witnesses will take up the ball. But guess what? Until that day, this is how God works. Us. Us. Power of God in us. And the beautiful thing is the gospel does all the work. The redemptive power of God does all the work. All you get to do, some plant, some water, God gives the increase. We are his hands. We are his feet. Some of you be the two witnesses, I don't know. Somebody's gonna have this amazing power, but until that day, we have this power in earthen vessels, these cracked pots, that the glory might be of God and not of us. There's not many wise. There's not many noble. There's just people that said yes to God. And I hope you do. And I hope I do.